thinking as Steve was sharing during communion how appropriate to learn how to see ourselves the way God sees us. And that is, I believe, one of the undercurrents of the Song of Songs. By the way, if you were not here on Wednesday night, I encourage you to go back and listen to the teaching. It's on primarily on chapter 4, which is the wedding night, and to see uh, ourselves. And the way the groom sees the bride and describes her, it's absolutely stunning. It is intimate and um, pretty amazing. So that, that happened Wednesday, and I encourage everyone to hear that, especially if you're struggling with the whole idea of intimacy with God and drawing near to Jesus and truly believing that when He looks at you, He sees, as Steve was sharing, that precious white stone as opposed to the one that's all marred. To see ourselves as God sees us. But you can't. You cannot see yourself. You never will truly see yourself as God sees you until you first believe Him. you got to believe in Him. And trust Him. Not until that has happened will you be able to shift and begin to recognize what He sees in you. And so repeat after me, I am my beloved's. And His desire is for me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for calling us Your loved and for being our beloved. And Father, help us truly to see You as You see us. To to, to see ourselves, Lord, as You see us. To understand what we mean to You, not selfishly, not arrogantly, for we know truly in our heart of hearts, Lord, we know our sin. We know our sin nature. We know those striations of our lives. We know our failings. And we know how desperately we need Jesus. But the way You wash and clean us Calling us your spotless bride, Lord, is is amazing. And I pray that we would accept and believe that. Even as we have accepted and believed you, Jesus, as our Lord, our shepherd, and our King. And now guide our study this morning. And help us into that place of recognizing you as our lover in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 6. Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart. Perhaps you have heard it referred to as the institution of marriage. The institution of marriage, that phrase referring to marriage as having been established at a certain point in time for certain purposes. And and you Bible students, you know this happened when God gave Eve to Adam. That He established marriage. Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But husbands and wives, let me ask you this morning, When was the last time you referred to your marriage as an institution in the bedroom? You know why? Because while marriage was instituted by God, the idea of institution does not promote affection or romantic love. Hey, listen, it sounds great in the courtroom where marriage is being defended, but it sounds lousy in the bedroom where marriage is being enjoyed. Marriage as an institution. Now, I began to address this on Wednesday, but I thought more about this and prayed about this, and I want you all to hear this. The bridge is not an institution. It is a fellowship. Any more than the church is an institution, it is a fellowship. It is a family. 
We are not patrons of an organization here. We're the people of Jesus. And it's so easy for us to slip into that mindset, especially with growing churches, especially as things change and, and more people are showing up and there are more services and so there are more things needed to be done. But Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to describe that attitude as having led Jesus to the cross. That doesn't sound like an institution to me. Jesus didn't die for the organization of the church. That is, to bring about an organization that we might call the church with membership and with boards and with structure and with institutional thinking. But don't we have a board and a structure? and Don't we even have some institutional things that happen? Of course we do. But it's the attitude of the heart that starts to get a little bit off. We need to understand when a church grows from a small intimate fellowship of a handful of believers to a larger dynamic of people, attitudes can sometimes shift. And that's that's my concern. Not that that's going on here, but that we head that off with a right heart and a right attitude one to another in this fellowship. We can easily begin to view church as an institution responsible for providing goods and services for we the patrons. And it's the wrong attitude. Well, shouldn't the church take care of that? Uh, Maybe we should call the church. Well, the church needs to look after that problem. And if we start referring to the bridge, or any aspect of the church of Jesus, if we start referring to it in the third person, we become in danger of losing our first love as a fellowship. Our first love, which is gaining simple affection for Jesus and for each other. I mean, that's really the bottom line, why we would gather here even on a Sunday morning. It's not to check in, to punch our church card. It's to love each other, right? And to love Jesus. Him first and foremost. Worshipping, pouring out our hearts to Him, opening ourselves up to His Word and His teaching and what He wants for our life, but also to look each other eye to eye and to care for and about each other. Jesus uh, wrote to the church in Ephesus these words. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Good stuff. Good job. Nice institutional approach to things. However, he says, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Don't forget your first love. This church in Ephesus was doing all the right things on the outside, an institution of great strength and theological fervor, but inside the heart was lagging behind. And that attitude of institution kills passion. It really does. It dries it up. If we approached our marriages with the attitude of institution, as in something that we invest in to receive certain benefits from, all the passionate romantic love would die away and sometimes does in a marriage. When a husband and wife begin to work as partners in a business rather than a man and a woman in love. Ephesus, by the way, means darling one. When Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus, he was writing to his sweetheart. And he was saying, let's not forget where this all began. Don't forget the love. You're out there fighting apostasy. Good job. But Jesus says, let me call you sweetheart. If I talk about the bridge as an institution, I distance myself from it. Don't talk about the bridge like that. You are the bridge. The bridge is just a name that helps us know who we gather together with on, on a Sunday. It's, it's a fellowship name, but, but larger than that. 
I'm asking you to consider what church really is. Church is not an institution. Church, gang, is you. It's me. It's us. We are not an organization. We are an organism. And we are a people who are called to be in love with each other and in love with Jesus and not institutionalized. Now, a couple of things to to keep in mind regarding the church, both the larger church in the world and our church fellowship right here meeting in the barn. Number one, the church is Christ's creation. Now, you all know this. A committee didn't think this up. Some crusty old codgers in a board in a dusty old office building didn't organize this thing. That's not how it happened. Jesus called it into being. Jesus did it. By His love, by His passion. Matthew 16 and 15, He's there with the apostles, Caesarea Philippi, by that great rock mountain. And they're standing there together. And Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter blurts out, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Petros, little or Petra, little rock. Petros, little rock. And upon this rock, Petra, big rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. On this rock. On Peter? No, Peter's a little rock. He's a little pebble. He's the rock with the striations and the marks and the bruises and the darkness in it. But on this rock, the rock of Christ, I will build my church, he says. The chief cornerstone. And Jesus became that chief cornerstone. Jesus built us up. Jesus breathed life into us. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that the celebration of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in, rushing in, filling the apostles. And Peter preached the very first sermon of the church, had a great outcome. But he started out by preaching to a massive crowd of looky-loos. They weren't there for church. They didn't even know what was going on. They just heard a noise. And people started gathering from all over the place who were there for a different celebration altogether. And they came in and they started hearing this fisherman preach. And it was a phenomenal teaching. And there had to be people in the crowd saying, where is he getting this stuff? It's really good. But who is this guy? And we're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Day one. At the end of the chapter, it says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It doesn't say that Peter and the apostles got together and developed a membership plan and started signing people up for their organization. That's not what happened. It says the Lord added to their number day by day, which is why the bridge isn't even the church. We're just part of it. We're a little corner. We're just a gathering of Christians who are part of this wonderful thing that Jesus began, that Jesus founded, that Jesus breathed life into, the church. And we get to be part of that. As the Lord adds to His number daily those who are being saved. So the church is Christ's creation, not man's invention. That being the case, second thing to know. The church is Christ's conveyance. Christ's conveyance. What do you mean? The physical body, it breaks down, it's limited by nature, it... it, It's not eternal. I was having a conversation with my folks about this yesterday. My mom facing some medical problems and just frustrated by it. And and she made the comment about just, it's hard to feel weaker than I used to feel. You know, my mind is still sharp. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, mom. But she's like, no, it is. But But my body can't do, doesn't recover as quickly, doesn't do the things. And some of you who have been around longer than I understand this. I understand this more than I wish I did. But our bodies are are temporary bodies. But my body has a huge role in my life. It conveys my spirit. It's the vehicle of my spirit. This This is the vehicle in which God placed my spirit, who is who I really am. My body is not who I am. My spirit is who I am. And God has placed my spirit in my body to convey my spirit through this short period of life onto glory, which is where I'm intended to be. So my body is a conveyance in the same way Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12.27, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. 
So in the same way the physical body conveys the Spirit through this season to the next, the church conveys the Spirit of Christ with His people in this season to the next. Now I'm not saying that Jesus is limited to His church. Not in any way. What I'm saying is we are being conveyed by Him and with Him in a wonderful, joyful wedding procession. And that brings us back to the Song of Songs. That's what's going on, I believe, here. The wedding procession. Verses 6 through 11. The the third canticle, which is verse 6 of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4 and on into the first verse of chapter 5, that third canticle or third little song here in the Song of Songs is the wedding procession and the wedding night. And it's beautiful, stunning as it continues on. And we actually skipped over these verses on Wednesday to deal with the wedding night, but now we're coming back to the wedding procession this morning. I want you to see this. Go there now. Verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the scented powders of the merchant. Behold, it is the couch or the traveling couch of Solomon. Now remember, I shared before, I believe there are three primary singers in this song. The bride, the groom, and the chorus. And in these verses, the chorus takes the lead. It's not the groom singing. It's not the bride. It's the chorus singing out this this wonderful wedding procession and they are describing the king's palanquin. Now get that word down because you're going to hear it a few times this morning. The king's palanquin. The king's what? Palanquin. P-A-L-A-N. Q-U-I-N, it's an English word. We just don't have any use for it anymore. It describes literally a conveyance formerly used especially in Eastern Asia consisting of a covered and curtained couch borne on the shoulders of servants by the use of poles. And that picture you see in gold up there behind me. That's a palanquin. That traveling, you've probably seen it in the movies. Hollywood's recreated it in different ways. The Hebrew here, where it says Solomon's couch, is mitah, which is literally bed. That's the word they use for bed. But it also implied, and in the context, is a traveling bed, a traveling couch. It's a palanquin. Now, I made a correction on Wednesday that I need to repeat this morning because I want to make sure everybody gets it. When we began the song a couple weeks ago, I said verses 6 through 11 describe the procession of the king coming to the north of Israel to get his bride. And I still believe he does that. But as the third canticle begins, he's already got her. She's already with him. What are you talking about? This is the wedding procession of the song. The groom has come to carry his bride off to the wedding, and what is sung here is the bride riding with the groom in the king's decked out, tricked out, lovingly fitted and ornamented palanquin. They're in this ride together, and they're not, it's not him going to get her, it's him bringing her back as they proceed to Jerusalem. How do you know that? Well, For one thing, because the song ends with the wedding day and goes right on into chapter 4, the wedding night. But there's another hint here. Verse 6 again says, What is this coming up from the wilderness? They're going up. When you are in Israel and you go up, you are always going up to Jerusalem, the highest point in the land. You're headed up. Now we think of north and south as up and down. You know, if I'm headed north, it's always more tiring because I'm going uphill, right? When I'm going down. Anyway, up to Jerusalem. And she found him at the, in the early verses of chapter 3. She found him whom her soul loves. She holds on to him. He held her fast. He would not let her go. They go up to the home of her mother. Remember, he takes her, or she takes him to her mother's house, that place of where, where she would be pure and chaste and no one could question what's going on. They go there first. Now they're coming back. And now the joy of the wedding procession has begun. She is riding with him. He's bringing her up to the place that he has prepared for her. It's a rapturous event. Like the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now Wednesday we talked about this. If you're saying that the palanquin might be in some ways a picture of the rapture, isn't the rapture an instantaneous thing? 
So how can that, this long procession going up to Jerusalem, be? Well, listen, it's more than just a picture of the rapture. The conveyance of Christ, the, the, the picture of the palanquin, the riding with Jesus, as we talked about Wednesday, is more than simply the moment of the rapture. Gang, we are already on the journey. In other words, in some ways, you could even say the rapture has begun. Not the instantaneous being caught up that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Or Jesus refers to when He says, you know, be sure that you, you have faith to, to be rescued from these things. Now we're already on the path. We're already traveling. When you give your life to Jesus, you begin the wedding procession. You're His betrothed. He brings you in to the traveling couch. He conveys you to that point where in the last moment, He will suddenly catch us up to be with Him in the clouds. In the meantime, gang, we are in the conveyance of Christ right now. Not an institution. A conveyance. This is the body that carries us through the life until He comes. Our spirits joined together with His Spirit in the body of the church heading up until that last moment when He truly catches us up to meet Him in the clouds. We ride in the glorious company of Jesus Christ. Do you remember that on a daily basis? Or do you, like me, have a tendency to forget when you're headed to the store or headed to a place of business or dealing with people and life gets difficult and you start to interact and you have things going on and you have issues and pain and problems and, and, and heartache, do you forget that you are right now riding with Jesus? What did He say? Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. I'm here. I'm with you. We're together. We're in this journey together. Now in this text, there are several things that describe this marvelous ride. Things that I'd like you to take a closer look at as Jesus conveys His church from one season to the next, from this world to the coming kingdom. Let me give you a few. Number one, note the scent. The scent of the Savior. The scent of the Savior. Verse 6 again. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant? The scent of myrrh. The scent of myrrh, you all know, the burial spice that was presented to Jesus as a baby. Kind of a, you know, a weird shower gift. (laughs) Burial spice. But the scent of myrrh, that smell of myrrh, represents biblically His sacrificial death. One of the gifts of the Magi for baby Jesus, but it's also possible that very same gift was used on His body at His burial. Now, I've said before, it's possible that Mary held on to and kept that gift, and then on resurrection morning, she, with the other women, was carrying that along to use it. But it also is possible, I can't say for sure, that it was actually used on the body of Christ. What are you talking about? John 19, verse 38. Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So understand, when Jesus was laid in the tomb, After the crucifixion, he was laid there, wrapped up tight, covered in a hundred pounds of burial spices. The conveyance of Christ still smells the sweet but sorrowful burial spice that scented Jesus' body in the grave. You know, every time we share communion together, we are reminding ourselves, being reminded, remembering Jesus' death on the cross. And people might look at that. In fact, more and more in our culture, people look at that and think it's just a little strange. you know. Even within the church, I get questions all the time. How often do you do that? You do that every single week? Doesn't that get old? Not for me. Never gets old. The constant reminder of the sweet savor of the sacrifice of our Savior. So it's why we remember the cross so often. We smell the scent of myrrh. But there's also the scent of frankincense, the fragrance of frankincense 
as the palanquin bears a high priestly aroma. Not just a sacrificial aroma, but a high priestly aroma as well. Leviticus chapter 2 verse 1 says, When anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, he shall offer, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and take from it a handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar and offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The priest would go into the holy place where the altar of incense stood right up against that next curtain. And he would go in and offer up incense on a daily basis. This was part of the role of the priest to offer up that incense with the prayers of the people, with prayers for the people. It sweetly portrayed the priestly intercession the priest's prayers. And in Revelation, I love the picture that we get. It's a marvelous picture of heavenly insight into how prayer looks coming up to the Lord. Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, An angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Frankincense in the Bible. Anytime you read the word, it is a picture, a reminder of prayer. And in this case, it's the current prayer and ministry of Jesus Himself. The high priestly intercessory prayer that goes on for you and for me even right now. Romans 8.27 says, He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Hebrews 7.23 tells us the former priests on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Now don't get lost in in these words here. The Hebrew writer says, Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, our high priest... Offering up the frankincense of intercession this morning, right now, as you're sitting in this chair listening to me talk. He's interceding for you. And He's praying for you. Part of our conveyance is the continual prayers of our Savior to the Lord. By the way, if you want to be a minister like Jesus, pray. The most important thing an individual believer can do on this ride with the Lord, on this time of life, is pray. More important than anything else, I heard something tragic yesterday. A person that I know, family member, made a comment, not my mom or dad, made a comment that they never talk to God. They claim to believe, they go to church, but they don't talk to God. No, I never talk to God. Really? I wonder what it's going to be like when he comes face to face with God and God's trying to recognize him because he's never known him. You never talk to me. Who are you? (laughs) I'm sorry, let me introduce myself. I'm Jehovah. (laughs) And you are? And I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be that person unknown. Jesus says... There are going to be many people in that day who come saying, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do miracles in your name and all these great things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. I have no relationship with you. I have no idea who you are. Prayer, the ministry that we're called to. You want to be like Jesus? Pray. Psalm 141, verse 2. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. So the palanquin of the king conveys the bride and it's scented with the aromas of his previous death and his current priestly life. Now in chapter 4, there's one other thing I showed everyone Wednesday night. you got to see this. I just love it. It describes the two together. The myrrh and the frankincense. As the groom is now singing of his bride, as he's describing his bride, verse 6 of chapter 4, look over there. He says, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. And here's what's sweet in the deal. To the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. He's talking about this amazing, amazing picture. Where did Jesus go 
He died on the mountain of myrrh, the mountain of sacrifice. He gave Himself up, requiring that burial spice of myrrh, the mountain of myrrh, Mount Zion, Calvary. And then from Calvary, where did He go? To the hill of frankincense. Mount Zion in heaven. The heavenly Zion where He prays constantly for His people. We get some prophetic insight there. But here's what's wonderful on the deal. The bride, listen, the bride could not possibly ride on this couch and in this procession without getting the sacrificial scent of myrrh and the priestly scent of frankincense all over her. She would step out of that palanquin in Jerusalem smelling like her king. Smelling like the one with whom she had spent all that time writing. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying sacrifice and prayer distinguish the bride who rides with Jesus. Which is why in the institutional church, sacrifice and prayer don't work real well. Because they're man-generated. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do ministry. I'm going to sacrifice my time. And I get frustrated when people don't do it with me. When people aren't working hard like I am. When people aren't offering themselves the way I'm offering myself. That's institutional thinking, gang. But if you're riding with Jesus in sacrifice, you're looking to His sacrifice. Not to those around you. You're looking to His mode of praying. Not whether or not people are joining you in prayer. No. We smell like Him. How do we maintain romantic intimacy and not become a religious institution, sacrifice, and prayer that is generated in the relationship we have with Jesus? Do you bear the scent of the Savior? The scent of the Savior is number one. Here's the second one. Look at verse 7. Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. So, the scent of the Savior. Number two, the security of the mighty ones. As you ride with Jesus, as we are conveyed in this life, the, the security of the mighty ones, we have a great protection. Who might these mighty ones represent in the song? Who might they be? Personally, I think they indicate the presence of mighty angels. Angels that would surround, protecting that traveling couch with the bride and the groom, making sure everything's safe, everything's secure. God's secret service. God's secret service. Of them, Jesus said in Matthew 26.53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? I'd like to have seen that. That would have been what I would have done. There in the garden, you know, faced off with the religious stuff shirts and the Roman guard, I would have said, hang on a second. Father, could we go ahead and dispatch? Dispatch the troops? And boom! I mean, that just would have been stunning. And then I would have ushered in the kingdom right there. And the whole thing would have fallen apart. Now, some cults, some cults such as Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus was once an angel. People ask, because they try and understand or distinguish, what is it about Jehovah's Witness that, that, that is, that's cultish or, or not like, not like you know, Christianity or what the Bible says? Well, one thing is they don't worship the same Jesus. Because the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness movement was once the Archangel Michael, who then became the Son of God and was kind of transplanted then to, to earth to do the things that He did. Look, an angel didn't die for you. God did. An angel dying for you doesn't make sense. Only Jesus. And that notion, by the way, of Jesus perhaps being an angel at one time was completely gutted in the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 13, where He says, To which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Ministering spirits. Angels. Spiritual protection in the spiritual realm around us. They have a unique role. A unique role given to them that provides real security. But listen to this little side note. The security of angelic protection 
is especially for little children before they come to know Jesus. Let me say that again, and I'll show you why I say this. Angelic security is especially for children before they come to know Jesus. Wait, what? What? Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 10, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So this idea of guardian angels for children, Jesus is the one who supported that. He's the one who drew our attention to it. That little ones have those guardian angels. But what do you mean they provide security for children before they come to know Jesus? Watch this. Look over in chapter 4, verse 8. There on the wedding night, I think toward the end of the wedding night, toward the conclusion of it, the groom says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and from the mountains of leopards. The groom is now inviting the bride to head off on their honeymoon. But now, as opposed to the wedding procession that we deal with earlier in chapter 3, they proceed alone. It's just the bride and the groom. Come with me, he says. Come with me. Journey with me down from the heights. Journey away from the place of the lions and the leopards and the stress and the strain and the terrors of life. Come with me, he says. No mighty men. No secret service. No musketeers. Now, all of a sudden, the bride has one source of protection for her, and it's the groom. It's his protection. So the angels disappear now? I'm not saying that. The angels are still battling it out. But your greatest protection once you have given yourself to the groom, to Jesus, is Jesus. Which is why we don't pray to angels. We pray to Jesus. He's my protector. He's my strength. He's the one with whom I journey. And He is all I need. Christians, whom then shall I fear? If I'm riding in the palanquin of Jesus Christ, whom then shall I fear? What are you afraid of in this life? I love the words that Jesus Himself spoke, Jesus the groom, to His precious followers. He said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But what if we get knocked off the path? Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is a done deal. No one's going to interrupt this ride. No one can knock you out of the couch. No one can take you off course. I'm with you. I'm right here. Please understand that you are couched not only in the conveyance of Christ, that is being the church, you're couched in His arms as He bears you home. Back in chapter 3, verse 9. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Number three, I would call this the splendor of the ride. The palanquin itself is now described as the songwriter gives specificity to it. But look at this. It's really interesting to me. It's made of timber and silver posts and gold and purple. Marvelous pictures in Scripture, which if you look deeper into them, tell us something about this conveyance. The timber reminds us of Jesus' humanity. The silver posts, silver in the Bible, is the picture of redemption. It shows up connected to redemption time and time and time again. Even in the coin that was paid to the temple for the firstborn of a family that the firstborn not have to be offered up, he, he was paid, they paid a coin, a silver coin, that was the coin of redemption. And the gold that indicates the deity of Jesus. And the purple that designates the royalty of Christ. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying Jesus is our conveyance. That Jesus is our ride. That we are couched lovingly in the arms of Christ. That He bears us. That He carries us. We are carried along on this journey in and by His presence. Wow. 
Paul says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3 verse 3. And verse 4 he says, When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Why is that? Because as He opens His arms in Revelation, there you are with Him. You were always with Him from the moment you gave Him your heart. You may not have always felt like it. You may have at times been afraid or forgotten or distracted to other things, but you're with Him there. And and notice this. The interior is lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. What's that all about? Well, in the song, it's a beautiful picture of the daughters of Jerusalem, those virgins of Zion, who, who were part of the building of this palanquin, and they, and they, you know, made it real special and beautiful and, and knitted and whatever it is the daughters of Jerusalem would do. But as we've talked about in our previous study, the daughters of Jerusalem, those virgin bridesmaids, are a beautiful picture of Israel. So apply that same thought that the daughters of Jerusalem are the ones who lovingly fitted out the interior of this thing. And I thought, well, that works. Has not Israel lovingly fitted out the couch, the conveyance of the church? How have they done that? Romans chapter 9, verse 4, to Israel belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever Amen the interior of the couch lovingly fitted out all of these things Paul says we would not have if not for Israel the word that you hold was protected down through the years as scribe after scribe lovingly crossed every T and dotted every I and was sure to make every sentence exactly right. Oh, come on, there had to be some corruption along the way. (laughs) No, because if they made a mistake, they threw it away and didn't just start the sentence over, they started the entire manuscript over. And so the Word and the prophets and the promises and all of this that, that Israel protected and brought, that God brought through Israel, even His Son Jesus of the lineage, of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David. Even Jesus. Gang, we owe Israel a great debt. Do you know right now, you, you heard that Galad Shalit uh, was returned home in a prisoner swap, one Israeli for 1,027 Palestinian terrorists. That's the swap. And by the way, the difference between the, the, the two, the Israeli versus the Palestinian terrorists, is... The one who was brought home, the reason why the Jewish people would do that, why the Israeli government did that, Benjamin Netanyahu said, because we value life. Even one life. 1,027 Palestinian terrorists, there's no value of life there because they just as soon strap a suicide belt on and send their people off to be destroyed. But Israel said, no, one soldier is worth his weight in gold to us. And of course now... In fact, Tim, I'm just going to share this. Tim handed me this this morning. I saw the headline before I headed out of the house. Uh, Saudi Royal offers $900,000 reward for the capture of Israeli soldiers. This is, this is the response now of the Muslim world. A Saudi Royal offered $900,000 reward to anyone who captures an Israeli soldier on Saturday. Prince Khalid bin Talal, the brother of business tycoon Walid bin Talal, told the Saudi-based broadcaster Al-Dalil that the captive would then be released in exchange for Arabs held in Israeli prisons. Khalid's offer comes days after a prominent Saudi cleric, Awad al-Karni, put $100,000 on the head of every Israeli soldier. So here's the reaction. Here's the response. This is what's going on. And I think, wow. (laughs) Jesus, the salvation of the world, comes through Israel, and this is the world's thanks. And don't blame Arabs. This is the world's reaction to God so loving the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The interior was lovingly fitted out. We owe Israel a great debt. One final thing to note. The scent, the security, the splendor, and number four, the sheer delight. The sheer delight. Verse 11. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, 
and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. Now understand there's probably a little of Solomon's real past that's creeping into the song here. Because honestly, Solomon has his mother to thank for his crown. In truth, in reality, he has God to thank for his crown. But if you recall the story, what was happening in 1 Kings chapter 1, David was old, he was failing, his memory wasn't all there, his health was slipping, and Adonijah, his son, makes a move for the throne. Adonijah says, I want the throne, and starts to set himself up and actually begin to proclaim himself as the king in succession to his father David, who now is kind of old and out of it and, and on his bed in his room being cared for and nursed until his final days. And Natan the prophet sees it going on and quickly rushes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and says, look at what's going on. Bathsheba goes directly to David and on Solomon's behalf petitions David. Solomon, your son, is supposed to be heir to the throne. He's supposed to be the king. And David sends out the decree, and David has Solomon anointed, and Solomon becomes king. So Solomon, no doubt, credits his mother with his crown. Which makes sense then, that it would tell us the crown with which his mother has crowned him. But remember, as we sing the song, Solomon is a type King Solomon is a picture of Jesus. And I shared this with you before. Remember, he's the king of peace. Solomon was. Shlomo, peace. He's a king in the time of Israel's total peace. He's the son of David. He's beloved by God. You could go on and on making the comparison. And Jesus himself compared himself to Solomon. Said, hey, Solomon was great, but a greater than Solomon is here. Now, understanding that, Remembering that Solomon is a symbol of the greater than Solomon Jesus, what can this mean? How could perhaps we apply this as we're talking this morning? The crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding. Who is his mother? Some would say Mary. That would be a good Catholic response. Well, Mary's his mother. Mary crowns him on the day of his wedding, correct? It's too big for her. Too big for her. Earthly mom, okay. But heavenly crowning, no. Others say, it's the church. The church is his mother. Why would they say that? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 47, someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? Behold, my mother and my brothers, he says, stretching out his hand toward his disciples. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so when you read with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, even Spurgeon, Spurgeon has a whole sermon where he talks about the mother is the church. Crowning Jesus, crowning Christ, crowning the King on his day of his wedding. And I've never disagreed with Spurgeon before. But I'm going to, I have to. Because the church is the bride at the wedding, not the mother of the bride. Not the mother of the groom. Church is the bride. In fact, if you want to know who I think the mother is, turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I'm not even going to tell you how to get there. Verse 1. John says a great sign. Now stop right there. Some of you ladies are studying through Revelation with Beth Moore right now. Some of you others have studied Revelation. You've considered it. Let me give you the single easiest way to understand the book of Revelation. Take it literally unless John says otherwise. Okay? John, every time something is a picture, a type, a symbol, he tells you it is. Otherwise, just take it at face value. And it's really not that hard to understand. Take it at face value, but when it's a sign, when there's a symbol, he tells you. Well, he just told us, didn't he? A great sign appeared in heaven. I'm going to give you a picture here, a word picture, a symbol. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Okay, before we go any further, who's the woman? It's Israel. How do we know that? Genesis 37 tells us how. 
Huh? Joseph has a dream in Genesis 37. And in the dream, he sees the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And his family understood it was them. Jacob the sun, Rachel the moon, the sons of Israel, the stars bowing down before Jacob. And so John gives this picture that the Jew would immediately understand. Sun, moon, and stars bowing down. (laughs) That's us. That's Israel. The woman who this sign is, is Israel. Look at verse 2. She is with she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, a great uh, behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. That's another teaching for another time. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she might when she gave birth he might devour her child. And you know what happened? And I'll just spill the whole beans right here. You know what happened at the birth of Jesus, right? Herod was there waiting to devour him. Waiting to have him slaughtered. And all of the male children under the age of two in Israel at the birth of Jesus, just as like happened with Moses, all of them were slaughtered by Herod. The great dragon is Satan. John says that later in the chapter very clearly. He's just giving you a picture of Satan, great red dragon. Waiting to devour the child that was birthed by the mother. And verse 5, she gave birth to a son. We know this is Jesus. A male who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's how we know it's Jesus. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. That word caught up, by the way, is harpazo. Same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture of the church. The child was caught up. Jesus ascended to be with the Father. Who is the mother? Israel. Who is the child? Jesus. And I would suggest to you, just for your thinking, please don't take this as absolute doctrine, because we're in a song here and it's poetic, but I would suggest that the mother who crowns the king on the day of his wedding is Israel. Revelation chapter 7, John describes 144,000 sealed and saved people as being from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Another problem with Jehovah's Witness, by the way, and I didn't come expecting to just be down on them, but they say they're the 144,000. The problem is 144,000 are explicitly 12,000 from every single tribe of Israel, and John lists every tribe so that there's no way to misunderstand that. It's Israel. And so here they are, this this 144,000. And in Revelation 14, they're further described as virgins, as chaste, those who are sealed and protected. And what's amazing is in Revelation 14, that 144,000, those Jewish people, are standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem with Jesus the Lamb. They're there. And in Revelation 19, verse 7, we're told, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. I'm not saying this definitively. But, might the faithful 144,000 of Israel be there to crown Jesus on the glorious day of His wedding to His bride? Perhaps that's what's going on. And it's the day called the day of the gladness of his heart. Note that. The day of the gladness of his heart. The day of the gladness of his heart, verse 11 tells us back in Song of Songs. His mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. The day of the gladness, or his gladness of heart. And if you have a pen and you've got your Bible open, you might want to circle his. To see ourselves as Jesus sees us. That really is a good bottom line purpose. Way to go, Steve, wherever you are. Good purpose for the Song of Songs. To see ourselves that way. Because, gang, this gladness of heart on the day of the wedding is not yours and not mine. Oh, we'll be glad. Don't get me wrong. We will be thrilled beyond anything we can ever imagine. But the day is His gladness. It's His joy. It is His sheer delight. And I promise you, being an eternal being like Jesus has always been, He will be more delighted than, we, than any of us. And we will be more delighted than we've ever been in our entire existence. 
His sheer delight. By faith in Jesus, we're being conveyed along right now, proceeding to the day of gladness. But hey, listen, so is He. Huh? He is too. He is with us on this journey. And it's delightful to Him. And He, our groom, Jesus, is anticipating that day more than you and more than me. How do you know that? Because we lose sight from time to time. We get distracted. I would suggest to you Jesus never does. He never gets distracted from that day of the gladness of His heart. He is always looking at it, always anticipating it, morning, noon, evening, all night long, with God the Father. He's just waiting for time to go. He is so excited about it. And I don't think I'm getting out ahead of the Spirit of Christ to say that. That He never stops delighting in that day. Does that give you some sense about how much He loves you? How excited He is for that full expression of love to occur? He, Jesus, Hebrews 12.2 tells us, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Even before the cross, He was looking at that day. Even as a child, He's looking at that day. Prior to His birth on earth, looking to that day. The day of the gladness of His heart, His sheer delight. So does anyone really want to boil all that down to an institution? Not me. I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of a big old organization. When I say big, I don't care what the size is. What I care about is the attitude of the heart. What is our heart's attitude in this fellowship? I've shared before, and some of you know, there's, there's a little concern about someday, if we build that building, when we build that building, when we move out of the barn and over there, how's that going to change the nature of things? Not at all if our hearts are right. If the heart is the same... It doesn't really matter what structure we meet in. That's institutional thinking, you know. Heart level thinking, relational thinking. Hey, if you all are there, it's going to be good. If you all are there, how much better? He's calling us home to the day of the gladness of His heart. One last question. <laughs> what do you think is going on on the inside of the palanquin as they ride? Bride and groom together, heading up to the wedding. Well, what do you think's happening in there? You think they're reading through the legal documents of their marriage? Okay, sign there. That's good. Make sure on the dotted line you cover that. Okay, we need, let's go to page 72. You think they're pouring over a prenuptial agreement? Now, if you do this, so make sure you read this carefully. Are the bride and groom in there, you know, considering life insurance policies or investment plans or writing out an equitable distribution of household chores? This is how this is going to work. Let's be clear. No way. No way. They are riding along in joy and laughter, embracing and singing in passion, all the wonder of a bride and a groom heading to the wedding. I think about Cheryl and I getting into the limo. The moment the wedding was over and heading to the hotel and in the back of the limo and our limo driver was drunk, that's another story for another day. (laughs) But we're in the back heading up the California freeway and we were just at peace and we were embracing and we were happy and joyful and we had no idea of any of the challenges that lay before us, but we were together and finally we we were married. That's the attitude of the bride. That's what Jesus calls us to. That will blow the institutionalized thinking out of the water every time if you ride with Jesus and you think about that level of relationship. A vivid ride in the palanquin of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's where we are. That's where we're headed, gang. Let's pray. Father, would you fill us up with that kind of anticipation? We come to that from time to time. We talk about Jesus coming and anticipating Him. Lord, I pray that moment by moment, as we anticipate the day, we would not overlook the presence of our Jesus right now. And we are with You going to that ultimate place. And I pray for comfort, Father, because there are those who have stepped into this traveling couch and... And life is hard. And I just pray for the peace of the embrace of a strong groom and Savior. 
who is bearing us home. And for those worries that come up, Father, as we ride still in our flesh, for those doubts or concerns or terrors of the night, Lord, protect us from those and hold us ever closer in Your embrace. Teach us to trust You and bring us home. And Father, I pray for every man, every woman, every child who this morning is not riding with You, has not made that decision to step into this relationship and be carried by You. Lord Jesus, would You woo each and every heart that needs to be with You. And I pray this morning, Lord, if there is anyone here in that place that You would convict and change a heart so they might be caught up in love for You and salvation and redemption and all that comes with it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.